0: I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas. I hope that you're home with your family. I hope that you've gotten some rest. I hope you had a fun gift exchange. If you got anything hilarious, let me know, because I do like hearing some of the sillier and funnier gifts that people um, have given each other. I had the hardest time coming up with good gifts this year because, I don't know, some years I feel like I'm really on the ball with Christmas gifts and some years I'm not. So I would call this just a very like down the line average gift-giving year for me, what I gave to my family. Um, but as always, my go-to is giving people books. Surprise, surprise here. This is my favorite episode of the year to film every single year because as you know, I'm a huge nerd. I read for fun and to study, but also for fun. Like That's what I do to relax, that's what I enjoy doing. It's one of my hobbies that I, as you know, when you become a professional and then you become a parent, you lose a lot of time for hobbies, but reading books is one that I have maintained. And so every year I like to talk about the books that I either liked the best that I thought were the most meaningful or that had the biggest impact, the ones that I think you guys might like to read. So while you're listening to this, start jotting down the books that you liked the best because I wanna, I'm compiling my list for next year already, my to read list. I wanna hear what you liked the most, what books you recommend. So this show, I titled it the five best books of the year, but it's actually like eight or nine because I couldn't pare it down. And I'm sitting here with like this original list of 11 or 12 and I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. This is my show, I make the rules. Why do I have to pare this down to five books just because it's the title is Five Best Books of 2022? I don't have to do that, so I didn't. Um, it's It's still called The Five Best Books, but there are some ties. You'll see what I'm talking about when we get into this. Also, one of my New Year's resolutions that I make every year is to read 50 books. I like to read at a rate of one book a week if possible. Um, and I need your opinion on whether I have surpassed this goal or whether I have not. I mentioned this to you about halfway through the year and um, and we're gonna talk about this more in just a couple minutes, but some of you thought one thing and other people thought the other thing. There was very strong opinions about whether I've surpassed this goal. Um, and we're gonna talk about that, well, just as soon as we get started, so let's get to it. Okay, if you want your skin to look years younger, Genyacel Skincare is the way to go, awesome products. That is a testimonial from April, who lives in Rockport, Illinois, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is that easy to look years younger with Genucel Skincare. I invite you to celebrate the holidays with me with Genucel's most popular package. I got you a great deal, 70% off at genucelcom slash Liz. Treat yourself to the only skincare products you'll ever need, finally. Genyacel is so confident that you'll love your look, every Genyacel order has a 120-day money-back guarantee. And for a limited time, every most popular package includes, for free, Genyacel's Hyaluronic Acid Correcting Serum. Genyacel has delighted happy customers for years by treating tens of millions of everyday skin problems, like wrinkles, dark spots, dry skin, sagging jawline, facial redness, and even those annoying bags and puffiness for men and women just like you. Order now at Genyacel.com slash Liz. Your most popular package includes a complimentary gift set plus free express shipping. It's dot com slash Liz. com slash Liz. Okay, so I thought for dramatic effect here, we would go in descending order and um, make our way up to the book that I recommend the most. So let's start at number seven. Number seven. The seventh best book that I read this year is called The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert Kennedy Jr. I know, we read this together, so this one cannot come as too much of a surprise to you. (laughs) At the very beginning of the year, this was the first book that I read in 2022. It's like 900 pages, something—it's kind of intimidating. I mean, I read it on my Kindle, so it wasn't this giant, fat book. Um, But it is an intimidating book because it's 900 pages. It took me the entire month of January to read this, which was a little— it's a little contradictory of my book a week pace, but it was totally worth it. This is a really good book. I know that there's criticism of Robert Kennedy Jr. and I don't find much of the criticism to be valid. I will say that I do double check his citations to make sure that he's portraying the results of the studies that he's talking about completely accurately but that's more because I'm very uh, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist about how the results of studies are portrayed. but this book is really good because, Obviously it's about Anthony Fauci, but it details exactly where the problems with Fauci lie. So for example, you and I know that he's a corrupt swamp creature who has used the NIH and the NIAID um, for his, his own power and his own profit. and. I know this is probably, I hate to do this again, especially right after Christmas. Some of the things that we're gonna talk about here, we're probably not allowed to say on YouTube because we're still demonetized and they've got these like sensors looking over my shoulder for the slightest, the slightest infringement on their terms of service. So if there is, if there is um, a bleep out here, I, I'm i sorry. I mean, I, in a sense, sorry, not sorry, because YouTube is forcing us to do this. But just FYI, if that happens, then you can go to rumble.com slash Liz Wheeler, the entire episode. Uncensored is available for free over there, so you understand why I have to do this. But The Real Anthony Fauci, this book, talks about exactly how, how Fauci is in charge of so much and how his corruption has grown. So Kennedy starts talking about regulatory capture, which he defines as, quote, the process by which the regulator becomes beholden to the industry it's meant to regulate. So the perfect example here is the vaccine industry, right? the federal government regulates through the CDC and the FDA and you know the NIH and NIAID regulate the vaccine industry, but they're so beholden to the profits of the vaccine industry that it's a perfect definition of regulatory capture. Kennedy writes, and I quote, the CDC, for example, owns 57 vaccine patents and spends 4.9 of its $12 billion annual budget, as of 2019, buying and distributing vaccines. The NIH owns hundreds of vaccine patents and often profits from the sale of products it supposedly regulates. High-level officials, including Dr. Fauci, receive yearly emoluments of up to $150,000 in royalty payments on products that they help develop and then usher through the approval process. The FDA receives 45% of its budget from the pharmaceutical industry through what are euphemistically called user fees. So this is just like a tiny, tiny, touch of the detail that uh, that RFK puts in this book he goes he's talking about Fauci being at the center of this and he goes from his perch at NIAID Dr Fauci has used his 6 billion dollar annual budget to achieve dominance and control over a long list of agencies and governing bodies including the CDC the FDA HHS and NIH the Pentagon the White House the WHO the UN and the British Welcome Trust this is I mean, it, it, he shows you, he doesn't just make these statements, he then goes on to show you exactly how Fauci leverages, um, leverages control. He talks about exactly why hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, these early treatments, these early interventions for COVID, which should have been like, oh great, we found these early interventions, lives are saved, pandemic's over, why Dr. Fauci behaved the way that he did by dismissing these and having the entire federal government and public health establishment brand them as pseudoscience or quack science. Um, and how destructive how destructive that was to the American people, how many more lives were lost from COVID because of this. Um, Kennedy writes, leading doctors and scientists, including some of the nation's most highly published and experienced physicians and frontline COVID specialists, like McCullough, Corey, Ryan Cole, David Brownstein, and Risch, believe that Dr. Fauci's suppression of early treatment and off-patent Remedies were responsible for up to 80% of deaths attributed to COVID. Think about how many people died from COVID. 80% of them, eight out of every 10 people who died could have been saved if Dr. Fauci had not done this. And the reason for that, Kennedy lays out, he said, for the FDA to issue an emergency use authorization for a vaccination, there must be no adequate, approved, and available alternative to the candidate product for diagnosing, preventing, or treating the disease or condition. So if hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin were something that were acknowledged by the public health establishment as something that worked, then Fauci would never have gotten approval, emergency use authorization approval for the mRNA vaccine, and he was financially vested in the Moderna vaccine specifically. He was also financially vested in remdesivir, which he needed emergency use authorization for. This is just a tiny, tiny peek into the corruption of Dr. Fauci, and I think Kennedy does a very good job detailing, these things we maybe are familiar with, we know, but he does a very good job detailing the amount of money, the people, the agencies, the outside actors, um, the processes that lead to Fauci being as powerful as he is and therefore leveraging that power over us during COVID that led to the outcome that we saw, that led to this this, this quackery that we were forced to adhere to otherwise you know, facing censorship and ostracization, maybe facing losing our jobs. Um, the book also talks about the AIDS crisis. Like Fauci's like 100 years old, right? This is not the first thing that he's done. This is not the first thing he's had his finger in in a corrupt manner. And Kennedy talks about the AIDS crisis, how Fauci used the same blueprint then. Or maybe it's more accurate to say Fauci used the blueprint he created during the AIDS crisis for the COVID crisis. Because during the AIDS crisis, Fauci ignored effective alternative treatments. He pushed harmful drugs that he knew were harmful to profit off of them. That's what he did with remdesivir with COVID. He claims to be the hero, he claimed to be the savior, even while being questioned, this is during the AIDS crisis, even while being questioned by the gay community at the time because they saw alternative treatments working and they saw the harm that was coming from the treatments that Fauci was pushing, they called him out, but Fauci was just too powerful. He stood to profit too much and he was such a brilliant manipulator of the media and of the scientific community. And Kennedy talks about why Fauci has so much control over the scientific community, how he is in charge of basically all of the money doled out at all of the universities and all of the scientific labs all over the country related to the development or the experimentation the science that comes first before we before there's a discovery or a development of a treatment a medication or a vaccine so any scientist that questions anything that fauci is doing will not receive grant money and this again is not hypothetical this has happened the stories that kennedy lays out in this book are chilling so this is a long book it is a long book it's 900 it's 900 pages um, because it covers it covers COVID, it covers the AIDS. It also talks about Fauci's experimentation on African children. How how vaccines and medication that have been found to be extremely harmful, dangerous, damaging, and even deadly for children that have been outlawed here after that's been found. How Fauci still um, inflicts that on African children in the name of experimentation, which is just so horrendous. So. Even if you're not up for reading this, I highly recommend that you um, get the audiobook version and listen to it, but it it is a good read. It's a really good read, I recommend it. Okay, book number six on my list is called Goodbye Lupus. It is written by Dr. Brooke Goldner, and this one is the opposite of the real Anthony Fauci in the sense that this book is maybe 100 pages. I'd almost categorize this book as being a pamphlet because it's really, really short. You can read it in one afternoon, probably in just you know, maybe two hours, three hours, if you're a slow reader or wanna take a break. But it's a very, very short read. And the reason I read this is because this doctor's philosophy on autoimmune disease is the philosophy that I use to manage my own autoimmune issues. I have been familiar with this doctor, Dr. Brooke Goldner, for years, but I've never actually sat down and read her story. How she went from being a medical doctor to embracing this—this—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a biochemical um, philosophy on medicine and on health. So I don't exactly want to say alternative because it's not herbal. It's not energy. It's, it's not it's not chiropractic. It's just outside of what medical schools teach medical doctors, so it makes it unusual for an MD to embrace this philosophy, especially on autoimmune disease. But essentially, this doctor was diagnosed with lupus when she was uh, in medical school and um, was significantly ill. I mean, anyone who knows anyone who has lupus or has it themselves know that this is not only a deadly disease, it it completely ruins your quality of life because you're just incapacitated with these flare-ups. But Dr. Goldner sort of accidentally discovered that the inflammation in our bodies that triggers the genetic predispositions to some of these autoimmune diseases can be managed by what she called a hypernutrition. So hypernutrition is basically an extreme diet. It's not just like, oh, moderation, don't drink soda pop, eat a salad once in a while, some fruit, no, no. This is like an extreme, no cheating, um, vegetable-centric, whole food, plant-based diet. Like, you know those smoothies that you guys make fun of me for drinking where I put an entire five ounce container of spinach or kale into one smoothie that I drink in the morning? That's hypernutrition. Where you are getting this immense amount of of nutrients from, mostly from leafy greens, and um, it reduces the inflammation that causes these autoimmune diseases, and it reverses the symptoms. It's how I manage mine, and the reason that I reread this, I actually am not sure why I read this. <laughs> I don't know what prompted me to pick this up, since I this is something I've been doing for a long time, something that's worked for me, and um, I don't know why I read this book, since I I been familiar and educated myself on her work with some of the other venues, but the reason I added it to my list now is because it is always good, I think, to know the backstory of how a doctor who has embraced something that's maybe outside the mainstream, how they came to embrace that, what their thought process is, what her story is. And after I had mentioned this, maybe six, eight months ago on the show, so many of you reached out and wanted to know more about it, so I you know, I wanted to put this on there because it maybe that's why I picked up the book and read it. Um, I hope somebody else finds this to be as helpful as I did. It's a really good read one way or the other, even if you are not looking for a solution. Um, you know, it's good to it's good to know. it's good to know about this stuff. Okay, book number five, we will get to in just a second. But first we're gonna talk about cozy earth sheets. So if you did not sleep last night, if you answer my question that I always ask, I did not sleep so great, I just slept okay, or please stop asking me that. You are not alone. One out of every three Americans report being sleep deprived and your bed sheets could be part of the problem. That's why I like cozy earth sheets. The wrong sheets can trap body heat, leaving you boiling one minute and freezing the next, which is gross. The solution is cozy earth sheets. They're the softest, most luxurious, and best temperature rating regulating sheets on the planet. It's like sleeping on a cloud, which makes sense because they're made from bamboo, which allows Cozy Earth sheets to breathe. So you can sleep at the perfect temperature all year round. And if you're not completely in love, you can send the sheets back for a full refund. I got you a great deal. You can now save 35% on Cozy Earth bamboo bedding, 35%. Just go to CozyEarth.com slash Liz35. You have to hurry, this offer ends soon. That's CozyEarth.com slash liz 35 I like Cozy Earth sheets. I have them on my bed at my house right now. I think you will too. CozyEarth.com slash Liz35. Okay, book number five on my best books of 2022 list, Red Handed by Peter Schweitzer. You guys know that I have been a long time fan of Peter Schweitzer's work. I think he is a marvelous journalist. I also think he's a very good writer so you pick up a book like this thinking oh this might be a little dense if it's how American elites get rich by helping China win maybe maybe that's not the most interesting read No no, it really is. He's a very good writer and he he gives you a concrete understandable answer that you can repackage and explain to other people about how China is infiltrating our country through the university system the education system at a lower level than that, the corporate world, and politicians, and then the family of politicians. It's, re- it's really, really fascinating. Let me read you a quote here. The new evidence, Schweizer writes, makes clear that the Biden family received some $31 million from Chinese businessmen with very close ties to the highest level of Chinese intelligence during and after Joe Biden's tenure as vice president. talk about problematic are we just supposed to ignore this this is this is it's easy to sit here and say oh joe biden and hunter biden have ties to the chinese but peter schweitzer gives you that exact argument for why it's like we, when we always talk about fraud and electioneering when it comes to the election and how so many politicians were claiming fraud but forgot to substantiate it but if you're going to talk about electioneering you need to ex- lay out exactly what happened That's what Peter Schweitzer does with the China argument. He says, listen, there are politicians in our country on both sides of the aisle that are compromised by the Chinese, and here's exactly how. Highly recommend this. He, and it's not just, by the way, it's not just Democrats. We also have um, Republicans, and I think that this Republican won't surprise you. Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chao are a chapter of Peter Schweitzer's book. He says, and I quote, how close is the business relationship between the Chinese government and the Chao family? Elaine Chow is McConnell's wife, by the way. When CSSC was creating a financial offshoot called CSSC Holdings, they actually placed James Chow and Elaine's sister on the board of directors. Okay, so Elaine Chow's family is, are on the board of directors of entities that are entirely tied to the Chinese Communist Party. This is obviously beyond a conflict of interest. This is a national security risk. It goes beyond that though. So we've talked about BlackRock a lot this year, the investment firm, because of the the fact that BlackRock is one of the biggest propagators of ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics, which is essentially a social credit score that's trying to force first other businesses and then individuals to adhere to Marxist ideology, which is what these metrics are. But BlackRock, They are doing the ESG stuff and that's bad, but they're also very, very tied financially, compromised even by China. This is what Schweitzer writes. China's sovereign wealth funds, like the China Investment Corporation, have hired BlackRock and others to manage large portions of their portfolios, according to a US congressional report. The China Investment Corporation is no ordinary investment firm and is expected to pursue government objectives. It is also a central feature of China's technology acquisition strategy. So BlackRock collects fees while its client works to advance Chinese interests at the expense of the United States. And again, this is just, I'm giving you the briefest peek into this book. Jake Sullivan, Schweitzer writes, appointed Joe Biden's national security advisor was a paid fellow at the Tsai Center, TSAI Center, before he headed to the White House. So he was paid by the Chinese. Schweitzer writes, today, more than 800 Chinese students and about 800 Chinese scholars are in residence at Yale. Yale is perhaps the most compromised institution of higher learning in the United States, compromised by the Chinese, by students, including graduate students, who come to the United States under the guise of pursuing an education in STEM fields, but in reality are here to steal technology and scientific advancements and take it home to the Chinese Communist Party. The same with professors and scholars who who are, are, I mean, even if these people are not a member of the Chinese military, even if they're not a member of the Chinese Communist Party, China uses every citizen in, the, in, in, in China who is in residence in the United States to get information. Chinese nationals have no choice but to be pawns for the Chinese Communist Party. It's sad because maybe there are some very good faith Chinese nationals who just want to come to America because they like America, they like Western culture, they want to get educated, but, Once you read Peter Schweitzer's report about how these Chinese nationals operate at U.S. universities, then you will share my opinion that we should ban Chinese nationals from attending U.S. universities and from obtaining jobs at U.S. corporations that deal with any kind of patented technology or proprietary technology information. Highly recommend this book, Red Handed by Peter Schweitzer. Okay, book number four, Book number four is actually two books, but I think that you will, I think that you will see why. Di- the Diamond Eye by Kate Quinn. These are the two fiction books on my list this year. And The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. These books, let me tell you, I don't know if you're fiction fans or not. I really, really like fiction, but I find that I'm not always I don't always have time to read fiction, but it is still my favorite thing to read. These books are so good. The high I once read an author who said that the highest compliment that you can pay to her book is saying, I couldn't put it down. And I had a hard time putting these two books down. The first book, Diamond Eye, is about a sniper in World War II, but this sniper is a Russian sniper who was fighting the Nazis in Russia. So there's a perspective you don't get very often, right? It's really, really good. The second book, The Rose Code, is about British codebreakers during World War II. And I know there are a lot of books about British intelligence um, against the Nazis, but this one was very unique because it wasn't about the U.S. It wasn't about the U.S. codebreakers. It wasn't about the U.S. intelligence apparatus. This was just the British. So th- these were really good books. There was a lot of action. There was a lot of adventure. There's obviously scenes from the war. There's just a touch of a personal story, so a touch of romance that, um, and a touch of heartbreak that made these books really, really good. If you are a fiction fan, I highly recommend The Diamond Eye and The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. Okay, book number three, we will get to in just a second, but first, let's talk about Rocket Money. So I don't know about you guys, but I have a subscription to HBO Max that I always intend to use and I never do. So month after month, I'm paying, what is it, like 15 bucks a month or something? That adds up to a lot of money every year, but I'm not. I'm paying that money for nothing because I'm not actually watching it. And when I say I don't know about you, I actually do know you're the same way because 80% of people have subscriptions they forget about. Maybe it's HBO Max for you, maybe it's Amazon Prime, maybe it's Hulu, whatever it is. There's this great app that I use that helps me track all of my expenses, and because of it, I no longer waste money on subscriptions I don't even use. You might have heard of it. It's called Rocket Money. We've talked about it a lot on this show. It was formerly known as Truebill. Now it's Rocket Money. The app shows all of your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want and cancels it for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. To cancel a subscription, it's super easy. All you have to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. So get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money right now. Go to rocketmoney.com Liz. Seriously, it could save you hundreds of dollars per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash Liz. Okay, number three on my list of best books of 2022 is actually not a book. I don't know if this counts. This is an essay or a chapter within another book, but it was a compilation book where a lot of different people wrote a lot of different chapters, so I think it still counts. It is Thinking Sex by Gail Rubin. Notes for a radical theory of the politics of sexuality. (laughs) And you might be like, what the heck, Liz? That sounds terrible, and it is terrible. It's one of the most terrible things that I have ever read. Gail Rubin is the founder of queer theory. Queer theory is the ideological underpinning of the transgender ideology that is being taught to children in our public schools, that has infiltrated our public library systems and the children's book industries. This is the, uh, queer theory is the underpinning of the drag queen story hours that we're seeing either at libraries or these quote unquote family friendly drag shows where grown men dressed in sometimes bondage gear, half naked are dancing in a provocative manner in front of two, and three, and four, and five-year-old toddlers and small children. This absolutely disgusting transgender ideology, it's actually queer theory. It's, it's the same relationship between the transgender ideology and queer theory as between critical race theory and this um, this narrative that's being taught to kids that if you're white, you're fundamentally racist, if you're black, you're fundamentally oppressed. That Right there, that critical race theory, that's, that's the essence of critical race theory. That's the principles of critical race theory that's being taught, even if it's not identified as critical race theory. That's the same with queer theory. All of this stuff that's being taught to kids that um, you know, biological sex is not related to gender identity, that sex is not binary, that you can be a man if you want to be a man, or a woman if you want to be a woman, regardless of your, quote, sex assigned at birth, all of that stuff, that's the principles of queer theory. So this essay was written by the founder of Queer Theory. So in a sense, we have to read this if we want to understand and acknowledge the reality of the political enemy that we face. We have to be able to answer the questions, what are the roots of Queer Theory? Who is this person? What what is the ideology? Can we articulate what Queer Theory is? What are the political goals? and the cultural goals of queer theory. And then then we get to the point of how it infiltrated our society, what the poisonous fruits of it are, and then we will be able to formulate a strategic response and how to how to reverse this and eradicate it from our society. The the short answers to these questions are critical or queer theory is a critical theory, it is a neo-Marxist ideology, and a critical theory is of course the Critical theory comes from the Frankfurt School, it comes from Max Horkheimer, who said that in order to tear down traditional Western um, society, we we have to levy constant, relentless criticism against whatever institution you are trying to deconstruct until it has been destroyed. So queer theory does that, leverages criticism against traditional theory, traditional theory when it comes to sex, and when it comes to the role of sex in politics. Gail Rubin, this founder of Queer Theory, believes that all sex is political. So sex must be politicized to achieve a political goal. uh, As you can tell, this is very heavy. It's very dark. It's disgusting to read, but Gail Rubin admits outright that She is opposed to sex essentialism, which is the idea that a man is a man and a a woman is a woman and you can't just change because you wanna change or because you take hormones or because you undergo body mutilation surgery. She's against sex essentialism. She supports the sexualization of children, which she admits outright. She defends child pornography and she defends outright pedophilia. I did a whole episode on this essay, Thinking Sex by Gail Rubin, because I thought, you know, if I give this this five-minute summary of this essay where I say, like, the founder of critical, or the founder of queer theory supports the sexualization of children, defends child pornography, defends pedophilia, no one's going to believe me unless I quote her, unless they read it for themselves. No one's going to believe it, because it sounds so outrageous, it sounds so insane. And so if you didn't if you didn't watch that episode or listen to that episode, I highly recommend you do so. You can just go to you can go to YouTube or you can go to Spotify or you can go to Apple Podcasts and type in Queer Theory and type in the Liz Wheeler show and that episode will populate. Highly recommend that you listen to that um, or read Thinking Sex by Gail Rubin for yourself because We have to understand this if we want to defeat it, and this might be the most critical imperative that we're facing right now in our country to protect our children from this this spiritual, sexual, bodily neo-Marxist assault. What could possibly be a more important fight than that? Okay, book number two on my list of best books of 2022 is called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. It is written by Brant Petra, This book, let me tell you, I have been Christian all my life, practicing Christian all my life. I'm Catholic, so I believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. I know that that's different from a lot of Protestant and Evangelical religions. But this book is interesting whether or not you are a Catholic or a Protestant or an Evangelical or a Jew. Whether or not, you you just don't have to be Catholic is what I mean to read this, even though this is a book, an argument for the real presence of the Eucharist. The reason that this book is so, I would even call it life-changing. The reason this book is so phenomenal is because it gives a historical, it gives historical context for the existing biblical arguments in favor of the real presence of the Eucharist. So journey all the way back to the Jews in the time of Jesus, right? And I think a lot of us are familiar with the Jews in the time of Jesus because of what we've read in the Bible, maybe a little bit of world history, but If you think about the religious views, the particular tenets of what Jews in the time of Jesus believed, then you might say, well, I don't know, there's like the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and you know, they did Passover. But a lot of us, or maybe I should speak for myself here, a lot of the times when I think of ancient Jewish customs, I think of like the time of Moses. I think of like Abraham. I think of ancient Jews and the traditions um, in the traditions of that time, or I think of King David, I think of King Solomon, I think of the temple, I think of, you know, the sacrifices that that the ancient Jews practiced. And I don't think as much about what the Jews were doing religiously at the time of Jesus after the destruction of the temple when they no longer were making animal sacrifices, when they no longer had um, the, the Ark of the Covenant. I don't think about that quite as much, but this book is... It is a deep dive, but it's totally readable. It's totally understandable, and it gives you an idea of exactly what the Jews in the time of Jesus believed and what they were waiting for. How they were waiting for a new Messiah. But what it, what did that mean? Like they didn't expect God to send Jesus. They didn't expect the Son of God to come to come necessarily. They expected you know the new Moses and the new covenant and the new temple and the new promised land. But they perhaps were thinking more of a military leader than the Son of God. Um, But when Jesus did come and started fulfilling these ancient Jewish prophecies of what the Messiah would be, it's inarguable that according to the Jewish religion, the Jewish beliefs at the time, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was the savior of the world. He was the new Messiah and the new Moses and the new covenant and the new temple and the new promised land. And so this book goes through Different aspects, whether it's pa- the new Passover, Jesus as the new Passover, Jesus as the new Manna, Jesus as the bread of the presence or the show bread, Jesus as the fourth cup of Passover, and it is. I took a lot of notes on this book because I've never read another book like it. I read a lot of religious books because. I am a very, I don't know how to describe this because I don't want to say cerebral because that sounds egotistical, but I like, I mean, you I don't need to describe what I'm like. You know what I'm like. I'm very bookish. I'm very factual. I'm very logical. I'm very, I like lists. I like statistics. I like all of, I like that structure of information in order to inform me so that I can fully commit to a principle. This is true in politics and in religion, right? I like to know all the intricacies of all the religious laws, all the history, all the context, context, so once I understand it, I can be like, yes, I give myself to this fully because it all makes sense and I made this choice with full knowledge of the choice that I'm making. And so I took a lot of notes on this book because there was so much information in it that I had not familiarized myself with until I read it. And I actually I actually copied and pasted some of those notes onto the notes that I use for the show. I usually write this little outline of, what I, of points I wanna make for the show so I don't forget. And I don't even want to read them now that they're on here because I really encourage you and challenge you to read this book. Again, you don't have to be Catholic um, to read this book to understand the historical context of what the Jews believed and how Jesus came and fulfilled that. Ultimately, this book is an argument for the real presence um, in in the Eucharist, but um, the entirety of the book is so... It will will enrich your faith regardless of what you believe. So you don't have to be Catholic, but uh, if you do read it, you probably will be. Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Brant Petra. Highly, highly recommend that book. Okay, are we ready? Drum roll please, the number one book that I've read this year. You guys are gonna hate me so much for saying this. This was the point of controversy about six months ago. So let me back up here for a second before I tell you the title of this book. About six months ago, I told you that I was reading the Bible cover to cover this year, but, but I wasn't reading reading it. I have been listening to the Bible in a Year podcast by Father Mike Schmitz all year. That is my number one book of this year. And I ask you guys, okay, I make this New Year's resolution every year to read 50 books. Does the Bible count as one book or does it count as 73 books? I argue that it counts as 73 books. My husband said it counts as one book. Um, and when I asked you guys this question, nobody gave me an answer about whether it's one book or 73 books. All you guys said to me was that listening to a book, audio form, doesn't count as reading it. I have never been more surprised at this, this point of controversy. And I, I, when I ask you this, I ask you this on Locals, I ask you on Instagram, I ask you on Twitter. This was across the board, that was what people cared about. They said, if you listen to this, it doesn't count as being on your reading list. So, it's my show. As I said before, I make the decisions. <laughs> I decided that this counts. However, I the jury is still out on whether it counts as one book or 73 books. Um, here's what I would say. I think that it all depends on the phraseology. I think that if you say, this was. This is on my reading list, then you have to read it, but it certainly counts as a book that you consume. So if you wanna play legalistic rhetorical language games with me over this, come at me, come at me. But what you should do more importantly is you should do this. Even if you've read the Bible cover to cover, you're familiar with everything in the Bible. Um, if you're practicing Christian, you should read the Bible, you should have read the Bible. I've read the Bible before, but this was a very unique experience. This was such an incredible, powerful, um, thing that I've done, one of the most powerful things that I've ever done, committing every day to listening to this podcast all the way from January 1st through December 31st. Again, I know that this is this is moderated, if you will, or this is presented by a Catholic priest, Father Mike Schmitz. But you don't have to be Catholic. He even he even addresses that very early on. Um, you you don't have to be Catholic to do this. There are tons and tons of evangelicals and Protestants who are also doing this, and. Um, I highly, highly recommend this. I think it will change your life if you read this. Like I said, even if you've read the Bible before, this is, this is. if there's two things that I wish for you in the new year, and I've said this to my family and friends too, as well as you guys, and I feel like you guys are my friends, If I if there's two things that I wish for you, it is to do this podcast and commit to it even when it gets hard, and to read Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. If you do those two things, your life will be changed. And we talk about politics a lot on this show, because that's what it's about, it's a political show, right? (laughs) But the purpose of fighting the political fights that we're fighting is to protect the freedom in our country to live our lives according to the principles and the morals and the tenets of our faith, so that we can worship the God that we choose. That's why I fight this fight, because what I'm fighting for is I'm fighting in this battle between good and evil. I'm fighting for objective truth. And when we say objective truth, objective truth is objective truth because God ordained it to be. To me, you can't separate politics and religion. So as politically engaged and educated as you are, highly recommend that you do Bible in a year as well as Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. That, my friends, is my list, my favorite books. I know it's not five, it's like eight. One's an essay, one's a podcast. I don't care, I don't care. That's, like I said, my show, I do it my way. (laughs) But let me ask you this, what were your favorite books that you've read this year? I am compiling my list for next year, so I wanna know what you recommend. You can let me know on Locals, you can let me know on Twitter, you can let me know on Instagram, um, wherever you want to communicate with me that you think will be the best or whatever platform you're on. Um, and if you have a to-do list for next year, oh, 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 one more thing, one more thing. This is one more note that I have about the Bible in a Year podcast. Father Mike Schmitz is coming out with a new podcast for 2023. It is the Catholic Catechism in a Year, and I am definitely going to do that. If you'd like to join me, I would love for you to do that with me. So if you want to just keep me updated, tag me on Instagram or post it on Locals or hit me up on Twitter if you um, if you're doing it so that we can follow along together. But let me know what you read this year, what your favorite books were, your most, the ones that had the biggest impact on you, and then what you are, what you're gonna read next year. Hopefully I'll hit my 50, hit my 50, without the Bible in a year, full disclosure, I didn't quite hit my 50. I think I was like 35 this year, which is not my best. But I had a lot of other projects going on, so that's my excuse. I hope you guys had a really Merry Christmas. I hope that you have a wonderful week, continuing celebrations with your family, and, Thank you for watching, thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler, this is The Liz Wheeler Show.